Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast, the podcast for the balanced gaming diet on all platforms. I am Daniel Winter. And this is Mark Uesa. How are you today, Mark? I'm drinking a lot of liquids because it's been a hot one this weekend. It's it has. hot, hot, hot in Vancouver, BC. So you keep hydrated, people. Yeah, well, we have we already have plans tomorrow for hibernating in the, in the games room. So uh, good. I, 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 I'm prepared <laughs> that way. Any fun plans this weekend? I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, so much of my energy and, and attention span these last couple of weeks have gone into investigating a, a brand new hobby, a, a hobby that I have picked up for my daughter let's <laughs> put that way uh that is aquariums uh my, my daughter's big into into shrimp so we, we got her a shrimp tank for her birthday and of course all of the research hours and hours of research about what i'm doing wrong uh, has come down to me so that, that's been most of my a lot of my energy these last couple of weeks uh and that's uh not left much for for games i'll be honest yeah, well, I think it's great to have a, a hobby like that to keep your hands active and your mind active. Yeah, it makes for a fun little science experiment. You've got these test tubes and testing various parameters and things. As, assuming it actually goes as expected and doesn't nothing everything not everything dies, obviously, then it, it can be quite fun. Yeah, it's an ecosystem, right? Yes, and yeah, this is a very small one for, for, the, for the shrimps. We, we just picked up some shrimp today, and uh, fingers crossed that they're still here when you're listening to this. Very cool. Well, today it's the annual Powell Street Festival, which is the Japanese cultural festival here. And oh yes, my family is Japanese Canadian, so uh, it's it's always a a hit for us. But it always seems to ha- land on the hottest weekend of the year, so <laughs> that's why I kept going on and on about fluids. This is a ton of fun, great food, and it's going on tomorrow as well. Excellent. I hope you get some good uh, Japanese cuisine there. <laughs> oh, it's always a good bet. We're going to be covering Underwater Cities for our featured game today. But before that, we'll discuss a little bit of the news and what else has been on our playlist lately. So, Mark, what's news to you? Probably lots of people that follow tabletop games like us are very excited and talking about Gen Con, Gen Con, Gen Con. It's all over social media. So I'd like to mention a couple things. I've said that I've been really into tabletop RPGs these days. First off, there's an award called the Ennies. They're fan-based. The winner of product of the year slash best setting is called Vaisen, V-A-E-S-E-N. And apparently it's set in a mythical Britain, Ireland, uh, British Isles. Yeah, uh, very much about the folklore of, of the Britain. And it, 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 does, it does go a little broader to even Scandinavia, I believe, in some of the expansions. But I, I actually have everything for Vason. Uh, I've not played it yet, but I, I love that setting. The the artwork by Johan Igerkranz, I want to say, is, is incredible. Uh, I, I bought it mostly for the art. <laughs> Oh, very cool. Well, it seems a little bit Valheim-y. I know it's not exactly mm. Norse, but in that same realm and period of dark, very dark, gothic, cold, cold wet. yeah. Right. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And Free League, the um, publisher, seems to be doing some, you know, a really bang-up job. They They scored a bunch of awards this year, so good on them. I'm going to quickly list off another system that I'm interested in, haven't tried. It's called Fabula Ultima. And the idea with this system is that it's basically like you can play an, a JRPG video game around your gaming table with pals. Yeah, okay. That's the idea. I, I, I just read the quick start rules, which are available for free. They're really easy to read. The art is great. And the just the kind of conventions totally make sense. You got your easy to understand, like, 
healing potions and antidote potions and it's not nearly as contrived as some of the more elaborate uh, RPG systems like Pathfinder or D&D. So I kind of like how light and breezy that seems. And the dice system seems cool too. A little bit Savage Worlds inspired perhaps. So that that one for best game, definitely want to check that out. There was a special award, the Diana Jones Award given out to a title of very much of interest to me called Coyote and Crow. Yeah, which yeah. I've I've admired from afar. It looks amazing. It's a sort of like a fantastical future of uh, non-colonized North America, basically. It just looks fantastic. I'm very, very interested in that book. I don't know much about it, but I've, I've heard a lot of, of great things that had me fascinated about the, the themes of that game. And I, I believe, I'm just trying to confirm that I believe they just announced another game a board game set in the same world. It's called Two Wolves, I want to say. I think it's a bit of it's a cooperative game uh, set like set in that same sort of indigenous setting. Oh, that's really cool to hear. Um, and I believe that the, the writing team, at least a portion of it, or it's led by a an American First Nations creator, mm-hmm. which is always great to see. You know, you you've seen like First Nations themes and games like Shadowrun comes uh, close to mind because I have a lot of firsthand experience, but it always seems a little bit appropriated, let's just say. It's like, what's the real perspective here? Is that actually what would happen if magical power came to be? It always yeah, for- just seems a little contrived, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, for all of the, the diverse settings that you get in board games, a lot of a good proportion of them are from the perspective of white dudes. <laughs> just to confirm, uh, the game is Wolves by Connor Al- Connor Alexander. Okay. Well, that's a title that we can check out, uh, a board game, you say. So that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing I'll mention TTRPG-wise out of Gen Con is that uh, Paizo, publisher of Pathfinder, finally announced Starfinder 2 uh, to come out in 2024. So Starfinder is it's sort of like a D&D offshoot, but it's set in space, very much a space opera-y more flamboyant and more colorful than something like Star Wars. I think it's really cool. And the the best part is that it seems to be like fully compatible with Pathfinder 2E, they promised. Oh, and I think okay. I think the combination of both Pathfinder 2E and Starfinder 2 the concept that you could blend them, that you can <laughs> have crossovers, that you can have worlds that are not just traditional fantasy you can have science fantasy as a blend i i think that really opens up the possibilities and it makes me much more interested in the system that's just like an, another extension of D, which i'm a little bit tired of i'm excited <laughs> so i'll keep an eye out for starfinder 2 uh, second edition yeah, I've actually been exploring the genre of science fantasy quite a bit myself right now. Not not to go on too much of a tangent, but I've I've been reading the Shadow of the Torturer as part of the the Book of the New Sun series. Uh, basically, basically as a, as a podcast I, I follow called uh, Shelled by Genre, who are reading through that right now. I just finished the first book, and that was that was really fascinating. How the way they they blend those like fantasy and and sci fi into one. There's so much of the the, the speculative fiction is sort of split dichotomy but you can get some really fascinating ideas when those two come together uh, how about yourself daniel what what news do you have 
yeah, I've, I've been keeping up a little bit with Gen Con. I try not to to get too much into the weeds, just for to, to not to, so as not to trigger my my FOMO too much. <laughs> but it's been great fun seeing all of my friends over there uh, having having a blast, and yeah, lots of new games to come out. I, I don't generally get into the the new releases so much. It, it, it's in the board game industry. It's also ambiguous as to what is when a game is actually released or like unveiled, you know, it's not like we have the, the big E3 press conferences that where all the, the announcements are packaged, but there is a lot of hype around specific games at this Gen Con, I will say. And some of those just quickly that I want to mention, there is Undergrove. This is a new game from Wingspan designer, Elizabeth Hargrave. Uh, similarly nature themed but this one is all about mushrooms and i haven't i haven't had a chance to dig into the mechanics too much yet but it is a fascinating theme i love hiking around in the the pacific northwest forests and and seeing all the all the different mushrooms i, I regularly stop and take photos to catalog them all so that, that's a, it's a fascinating theme i will say at the very least next up we have forbidden jungle so this is the latest game in the the forbidden series i guess you'd call it from matt leacock so starting with forbidden island desert and sky uh i've not played forbidden sky it looks quite a bit different with these weird electronic circuits uh basically built into it but forbidden island i may have said before i I consider that to be better than pandemic it is like a top 10 game for me i absolutely adore forbidden island so and and, and forbidden jungle seems to be very much more in line with that than forbidden sky so I'm, I'm, i'm very curious to check that out we have, speaking of RPGs, a new one's been announced called Whisperstone. And this is from Senfong Lim and Flat Out Games. And it's, I don't know much about this in the details yet, but it is being touted as a very beginner friendly RPG. It has something to do with jigsaws, I believe, or puzzles of some kind. Just from the, the names behind that alone and being quite interested in the concept of, 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 beginner rpgs I, i'm very curious to know more about that yeah i had no idea that flat out was branching out into ttrpgs so that's very cool and of course sen does great stuff yeah uh, he has the track record with Zhangxi. Zhangxi, yeah. yeah very cool and he's also i guess he's, he's currently showing off with uh jay cormier he's he's doing some collaborations there i don't think i don't know if he worked on hello is it a whole comic Hero. book series Harrow, Harrow County. I think that was I just think Jay. He was in Harrow County. Yeah. yeah, but he, I believe, he is working on their next game called Manifest Destiny, that is is also based on a comic series. Right. Yeah, I'm not for Manifest Destiny as a general thought, but knowing that it's yeah, but I thought the game, I, I, get, I had to take some pause, but know, knowing the people behind it, I'm going to assume that it's a very knowing use of that term. For to sure, that. for sure. <laughs> My city got away with it. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be amiss to not mention some of the chaos that we've seen at Gen Con though, around Lorcana, a game that I'm quite interested in. This is the new CCG collectible card game, this sort of Disney themed from Ravensburger. And I mean, we talked a lot about CCGs just last episode, and I'm, I'm very curious how Lorcana is going to go. I, I haven't dug into the mechanics too much yet, and it's going to be incredibly hard to find. Uh, I know our FLGS is like expecting very lean stock so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna wait it out and, and <laughs> wait for the situation to 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 slow down a bit before i dive into that but there has been a lot of chaos at 
around the Maurice at Gen Con, people getting trampled, people lining up overnight for like 16 hours to get product the next day. That has been a, a huge issue uh, at Gen Con. It's a shame to see that it's not a little better organized. Yeah, I'll definitely wait that one out. Yeah, let everyone else uh, have a crack at it first. Yeah, I will say one of my friends, uh, Nick Cole, who did a lot of the artwork for that, is actually down there uh, signing cards right now. So maybe I'll have to see if you can slip me one after the fact. Oh, I'm sure the production quality is uh, superb. Let's jump on to what we have been playing while we've been avoiding the Gen Con FOMO. Right. I'll start off with the A's. I uh, I guess I've been excited about cyberpunk as a genre recently, so I decided to boot up a title called The Ascent. I think it's been on Xbox Game Pass for a while. Maybe it still is, but uh, I think it just left. Actually. Yeah, I happened to buy it because it it was a uh, on on for cheap. Seems like a little indie title. I think it's a Devolver, if I'm not mistaken, who publishes it. Uh, it looks really simple, like it's 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 cyberpunk, but from a isometric perspective. But uh, don't let the simplistic graphics fool you, because there's real depth going on in the backgrounds, in the scenery, in the lighting. The character models are just garbage, but <laughs> but the world it seems alive you know it's it's very uh, mesmerizing almost looking at the detail going on in the world and it's yeah a lot of layers in the background you can see far into the distance down these deep holes into the the multi-levels of this city uh i I did play a a few hours of this and bounced off of it but that 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 part i do recall quite clearly i'm interested in in checking out a little bit more and i'm sure it doesn't compare to like the the diablo 4 or whatever but uh you know i like cyberpunk so uh yeah keep checking it out yeah, I, I think I was playing this on Xbox and it was just a little too fiddly to sort of upkeep all of the, the inventory and things like that. I, I only got a couple of hours in, but I wouldn't mind revisiting on PC sometime. Yeah, it looks super cool. Uh, how about yourself? Yeah, so speaking of Game Pass, uh, one that just hit this last week that I've been quite... I think I might have discussed this as, uh, as part of a previous episode uh, that I was anticipating it. And that's called Wandering Village or The Wandering Village. This is a sort of city sim i guess you'd call it you you've got you've given a a handful of of little villages uh ants ant farm style and you you're building little huts and and kitchens and farms for them uh and they're, they're harvesting wood and stone etc the, the, the twist here being that all this is happening on the back of a giant creature that's walking along like it's this giant sort of very Ghibli-esque, whimsical creature. It's very conveniently has a very flat back of, a, of a, on its rocky, or in, like a very rocky back, but then a flat surface for all these villages to conveniently build their town. And so one of the metal levels is you can see paths where this creature is walking along. So you can, you can, you can sort of direct it to some extent when you get to crossroads trying to find positions where it can sleep and eat uh that some areas are poisonous and you've got to try and manage where it can stop you can form little scavenger parties to send out to outcroppings to find find new villages or harvest resources this is a lot of some interesting meta levels there to to manage i am playing on the sort of t- the tutorial difficulty which is a very slow 
sort of rollout of mechanics to the point that I haven't really been challenged. I've, I've been playing for like five hours and I've only just now hit a poison level that might actually provide some sense of challenge to this game. There's been very little friction, but it's it's a very whimsical game and it's, it's been lovely to this. It's been a good podcast game, basically, to just chill out and listen to a podcast while I watch my little ant farm villagers stroll around. And uh, Onbu, that's that's the name of the, the creature. Just watch him mosey along. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Is this a, a turn-based game or a real-time? Real-time, but uh, as as is my favorite sort of style of these that you can pause at any time. Oh, very nice. Uh, there's, you can, you can pause it and then fast forward between one, two and four times, I think. And so I'm, I'm the sort of who would just leave things running one time and just, just zone out. But if you really want to get to the good stuff, you can, you can fast forward basically. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I've been certainly fascinated by this game. I like a, a real time strategy, especially if it has an interesting theme. So I'll check that out for sure. Yeah, it's in early access or whatever the equivalent on Game Pass is, but it seems to be pretty fully featured. I think it's just that they're probably adding more content as they go. Very nice. Yeah, Game Preview, I think they call it on Game Pass. That's right, yes. Cool. Uh, let me talk about a game that is a little underbaked, uh, since we're talking about that. I <laughs> I decided to boot up the title called Redfall. Now, some of you may have heard of this already or experienced. It's been out for a month or two now. But it was sort of the the touted as the big ne- next latest coming of... Uh, Arcane. Yeah, of Arcane. Uh, obviously, creators of you know legendary games like the... Um, Dishonored, Dishonored series. Prey yeah. is an all-time favorite of mine. Prey, for uh, sure. So this is very heartbreaking to see how Red 4 went down. Yeah, there's. A, the, I, I won't recount everything, but they, some devs said they wished it was cancelled. It was basically a huge flop and an embarrassment for the for the company and, and the publisher. And I just kind of wanted to hear, you know, see for myself. You know, how, how, how bad could it really be? <laughs> And uh, it's it's actually not that like it fu- it it functions. It hasn't failed for me. It just doesn't seem very inspired, and it also seems it just feels like a ten year old game. And it just came out a couple of months ago. It thematically, it's a little reminiscent of a game called Secret World, which I was I was just thinking that yeah, yeah. okay, which I, I was very <laughs> interested. I played a bunch of Secret World when when that um, sort of occult. Uh, urban fantasy uh, MMO first came out and it's still around you, there's a free to play version of it it sort of feels like that where you're kind of wandering around just a kind of a normal spooky town with weird spooky stuff happening so it definitely <laughs> felt old maybe because I was reminded of that but also it just seems technologically backwards like it it seems like it should be older and, and it functions less smoothly than even you know Dishonored 1 which I played not too long ago. So I have a pretty clear recollection of how that game functions. So I wouldn't say that, you know, it's a jaw dropping disappointment. It's just kind of like meh. So, you know, which, which is a death, death sentence in today's games where, where there are so many good games being mediocre. It doesn't really cut it. Unfortunately. For sure. Yeah. It, it's, it's sad to say that it's, it, you know, it would have been, a very adequate game about 10 years ago. So, so that doesn't cut the mustard. <laughs> a little, now. little late. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, how about you? What else you've been playing? You can't 
look anywhere on the internet right now without seeing all of the hype for Boulder's Gate 3 and everyone excited to date their bear druids and what's the mind flayers I think is, is the main enemy in that game but uh, I, so I, I, I've not bought that one yet. What I have been doing instead is trying the original Baldur's Gate via the, the enhanced edition that came out a few years ago. So this is this is like the the, the classic CRPG, right? I've heard so much about it over the years. I've, I've absorbed so much knowledge of just Dungeons and Dragons and that setting specifically by sort of cultural osmosis. Unfortunately, I was not prepared for this being second edition D&D. Oh, wow. uh, and it's, it, it's, it's, it is quite uh, dense. It, it, the, there's quite an involved tutorial in this game that does a great job of explaining the UI and interface of the game, does not explain anything about how Dungeons and Dragons works. Uh, I, I'm, I'm told the, the original, what do, they, what do they even call it? Instruction manual, I guess. I, I've, I've completely forgotten what that word is. I haven't seen one for so long. Uh, the instruction manual included a lot of those rules that you really need to oh, know, okay. but I'm surprised the enhanced edition didn't incorporate a little bit more of that. Like, have you heard, do you know what Thaco is? Yeah, it's something to do about, um, <laughs> you know, hit potentials or something like that, like a, a really early form of armor class. Uh, it's the yeah, so most people know about armor class, but now, like, which which is the enemy's sort of armor, but then now there's also Thacko, which is your player's chance to hit that armor class. Like, there's this whole two level armor class situation. I, I don't completely understand it, and I, I I think I gave up to be honest somewhere between that and my ranger refusing to actually use a bow and just hitting things with a stick. So uh, I, I've seen so many articles since saying, don't, don't start with hit this. It's it's not worth the effort of going back. So maybe I'll, I'll look up a playthrough or something. Uh, I know there is a, a podcast called something murder dads majors and murder dads i've been recommended so i'm gonna check that out maybe instead and and enjoy it uh, from from a distance i I was a little surprised how much jim cummings is in this game (laughs) his voice pops up quite a bit yeah i've uh started and given up Baldur's gate two or three times by now so i'm I'm unlikely to go (laughs) back to that even though i I really enjoy uh some of the more modern isometric crpgs but uh yeah i wonder maybe Baldur's gate 2 could be a little bit, you know, a little bit smoother experience. Oh, no, I've heard, I've heard it's even worse, to be honest. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it, it tutorializes even less. Ah, um, by, that's by unfortunate. I, I'm curious, I'm probably just going to bounce back to Pillars of Eternity and try that one again. <laughs> yeah, Pillars of Eternity actually plays fairly smoothly because of it's a mo- more modern system and it's obviously came out more recently. So I will definitely continue playing that for sure. Everyone's got the, the D&D fever, it seems, uh, of late. It was, it was that fever ran hot for me, and I mean, it ran itself out very quickly. Baldur's Gate Three is just blowing the the gates wide open. I thought it was a very good game for what it's worth. So I, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll wait until that to be discounted and, and check out Three. Oh yeah, for sure. Same here. I got too many giant RPGs to play. Speaking of nothing like an RPG, I'll mention the next game, which I played only the very few first few minutes of. It's a title called Atomic Heart. 
it was a title that seemed really interesting to me. I wanted kind of something like an experiential first person shooter. And I kind of was avoiding it because, you know, the whole like Russia, Ukraine war, I didn't really want to consume anything Russian themed there. But then I started it up and it has this really incredible opening sequence, which uh, it, it's really the first few seconds, so it's not a spoiler. It, it starts in this kind of like Soviet paradise. So it's kind of like the huh. paradise world of great ambitions that the Soviet Union promised in its early days, but it was actually achieved because of like some key technological breakthroughs. So the whole intro, which is it's kind of like a walk and talk, like Half-Life Half-Life yeah, 1 yeah. sort of thing where the intro is going but you're you're moving along <laughs> you're riding on vehicles you're walking down hallways all of it on the theme park ride <laughs> yeah it's it's incredible because it's it's just like that it's a theme park ride but it I cannot explain like the distance you travel in all of the single one shot it's incredibly cinematic and it it really showcases all of the intriguing post uh, industrial design of the early to mid 20th century and and then it goes even further right it's it's kind of like it's kind of like that weird uncanny valley that you get when you play games like bioshock infinite it's like this technology shouldn't have existed at this time sort of a thing (laughs) and it's really quite cool i'll just say this paradise does not last forever eventually things go wrong (laughs) and and it goes very (laughs) wrong so so yeah I'm, i'm excited about going back to that one yeah, I, I heard mixed things about that. It gave me some uh, Metro vibes. Uh, Metro twenty thirty three, I want to say. I played a bit of Metro. Uh, it's not near. It's not. It's the opposite of like the darkness and the dreariness okay. of that. So at least the intro is more sort of Bioshock in in like high tech. Oh, no, no, high tech, I guess, but just a lot of lot of more fantasyful yeah exactly it's a lot shinier (laughs) let's just say than than a metro or you know like even like a a modern fallout is yes i guess i'm just kind of feeling tired of grimy games not feeling my taste anymore (laughs) yeah too much beige okay well speaking of beige (laughs) let's let's jump over to 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 the board game table what have you been playing there yeah i'm gonna go really fast through mine because i haven't played uh, a lot that's new i tried out challengers i don't understand a single thing that's going on in that game uh in in bga that's why i don't understand because i haven't read the rules and nobody explained it to me that's okay the game plays itself anyway you don't need to (laughs) yeah that's kind of how i feel like yeah i don't get it but one day i'm gonna sit down and take five minutes to learn the rules I I played it on BGA two and, and and quite enjoyed it. Uh, since we I talked about it last episode, I, I realized it is a pretty clear analogy to auto battlers, which I've oh. not messed around with. But is a huge genre in of itself. So I think like Dota. Oh, I don't know the exact name, but I think there's a, there's a Dota theme yeah. auto battler where you assemble this team of, of of sort of critters and then they fight automatically so it's just assembling your crew is the game the actual matches you have no influence in right and this plays out a little similarly to that basically interesting okay i didn't know that sort of framework so that that's a good that's good knowledge going into it another game i've been playing which is uh, not new it's actually ancient it's called go it's that game with uh black and white stones i like very rarely play a game of go on bga because i sort of have to be in the mood uh, I noticed that they offer not only the 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 full size tables. I think it's nineteen by nineteen lines, 
but uh, they also offer the, the, the intro board, which is nine by nine, which is what most people start at, even children. And then, but they also have the 13 by 13 size, which is quite nice. It's like a, it's a medium balance without being super over one's head. It's quite manageable. So I was in, I'm, I'm enjoying the match I'm playing right now. Person I'm playing is not the best, but (laughs) I'm sort of using it as an experiment to like see, you know, like how can I push their buttons? Like how can I sort of invade their territory? And uh, I'm enjoying it. So I think maybe I'll play a little bit more of Go. Yeah, I admit I'm, I'm pretty ignorant to that other than having seen that uh, Shut Up and Sit Down review on, on Go a few years ago. But uh, I mean, I find um, chess too intimidating. It's, it's very, it seems, seems to be very much a game in that same vein where you need to go all in and, and commit to learning the strategy, not just learning the rules, but learning the strategies of the game. Yeah, I would. I tend to agree with that, but I would say that the the rules are dead simple in that game. Like it could not be easier to get in, and it's actually really gentle, especially if you have someone walking you through it. the The strategy comes; it's entirely dependent on your opponent. Whereas, I think a lot of people get stuck or intimidated by uh, chess because of the the weirdly named pieces and the and the strange movements <laughs> that they take and. And it's a surprisingly like cramped play space compared to a Go. Mm. It, it seems like claustrophobic, and it, it has all that cultural cruft that goes along with it as well. But Go, by comparison, seems pristine and very elegant. It, it's yeah. it's super elegant, and there is cultural cruft, especially in Asia, in China, Korea, and Japan. It's very very serious at high levels. But you know, if you don't care about all that stuff, it's really easy to get into. So I recommend it for anyone really. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, to take a closer look at some of those classic games sometime. Yeah. How about yourself? What have you been playing? Uh, Something beige, well, I, I guess. <laughs> uh, pr- pretty beige. We, we Last week, we actually got, got together at our local sort of pizza board game restaurant and, and played a few games, one of which was Ares Expedition, uh, Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, I should say. So we previously covered this on the podcast, take a... A scroll back and, and listen to that if you like so I'll, I'll be a little brief but in short I, I recently found the expansions to this there was a big kickstarter last year uh, which i skipped but re- had found them in retail just now and they were split into like three different versions and the one like one is a cooperative mode of the game but the another one that, that sort of piqued my interest the most Fairly simple concept, but it added, we added milestones and awards to, to Terraforming Mars. So that, that's basically these uh, goals. Like the f- first person to hit this goal gets some points, and at the end of the game, the first per- the person with the most of a particular goal gets gets some points. So very very straightforward, but there's just just a little bit more interaction, a little more tension to the game that was needed, I think. Uh, but in a pretty you know. Uh, sort of inobtrusive way but one of the other really clever parts is like the core to that game is the phase card so if, if you if you don't recall you just, there's five phases each round but each player chooses one of these phases to activate and only those phases trigger for that round so it's quite variable but in this expansion there was some cards that would let you upgrade those phases just for you uh, which which is with a great sense of progression and a, you know very 
they were very small in, in the grand scheme of things, but it definitely feels like you're achieving something and, and getting a little more reward there. So it, it felt, felt a little more dynamic uh, that, I, that I, I really enjoyed. And yeah, it, it, was, it was a fun little expansion just to mix things up ever so slightly. Uh, I definitely thought that uh, Ares Expedition base game really missed those those uh, milestones that the base game clearly has. Uh, it, it definitely needed that. And uh, I felt kind of the opposite about the upgraded <laughs> action cards. Like they, they didn't really do anything for me. And uh, I feel like it really benefits people that have the ability to upgrade those cards right from the first couple of rounds. Especially if you get them in your opening hand, yeah. Right. But if, you know, like me, I only got the opportunity to upgrade my cards, uh, you know, mid-game. Uh, you know, like I, I think I ended up over-investing in that. And then, you know, I came in second place. Uh, I think I could take or leave the the upgraded cards, uh, to be honest. But uh, yeah, nothing wrong seemed with the new cards. Other than that, it, it definitely all functions. It definitely all works. So if you just want more to add to your Ares Expedition, it's great. Yeah, I enjoyed playing that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, one other game I'll quickly mention is that I've played a new game called Woodcraft, designed by Ross Arnold and uh, someone called Vladimir Suchi. I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, not, not to spoil our thoughts on Underwater Cities, but after playing that, I was reminded of, of, of this this is his most recent game, I believe. Came out last year and got some some buzz from some some other reviewers I liked. So it has some very similar uh, DNA, I will say. But I was intrigued by this huge rondelle, basically. It looks like it's a very clockwork mechanism. It's just basically one thing that's spinning around, but the board changes quite dynamically as as this wheel spins and there's, there's unique action selection as, as you're going around this rondelle and it's unlocking different bonuses basically around around the board so it's, it's really a lot uh, not, not to compare it to underwater cities but it, it is incredibly generous with how it gives you bonus resources and it's just constantly showering you in little bonuses and that's really the key to this is is making a most of of that sort of improvising to get the best benefits at the best time and with a bit of order fulfillment which i always enjoy uh, and some dice games where you're treating dice very abstractly i don't really get on with i don't know if i mentioned last episode but i recently played dice hospital which i think you're a fan of but i i just found the the managing the dice there tedious like you have these patients represented by dice that you're sort of increasing from one to six and I just found that going back and bouncing these numbers back and forth was completely tedious. Whereas here, for some reason, it all just gelled together so much more. I don't know whether you just had a, a few, had a little more, a bit more agency in how you manipulated the dice. Uh, it didn't feel quite as, as tedious. I quite enjoyed that. So yeah, really, really fun little clockwork puzzle. That only fourteen actions in the entire game, so it, it is extremely brief. Uh, you've very, you really have to make every turn count. But I, I've, I'm really enjoying digging into that puzzle. <laughs> uh, is it on digital at all? No, no. Uh, I have I have the physical copy, but it, it, there's no official uh, implementation. All right, cool. Sounds interesting. I'd like to check that out. Uh, speaking of Mr. Suchi, shall we move on to our, our main topic? 
yes, let's get out of the way and take a deep dive and find out if it's better down where it's wetter. Under the sea. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to bring out my, my, bring out my singing voice here. <laughs> Bubbles transition by. The game, of course, we're discussing today is called Underwater Cities. It came out in 2018, really an age ago, it seems. And it was been out forever. (laughs) Right. Uh, And it was designed by uh, Mr. Vladimir Suchi. And the art here is done by Udrim. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. And Milan Vavron, published by Delicious Games and Rio Grande Games. I, I am a fan of, of Delicious Games, if only by their name. Yes, it's a real treat. And and by the way, we are talking about just the base game here. I think there's additions that might include the uh, expansion, but we're we're just talking about the base game at this time. Yes, I, I, I did play with the expansion only in the sense that the it includes the dual layer boards, which I know is a, a lot of people buy the expansion just for that, uh, not to, not to get ahead of ourselves. But uh, I haven't played any of the mechanics from the expansion. <laughs> right. So let's talk about what kind of game this is. I think uh, it's pretty fair to say that this is a worker placement game, but a, a really unique, unique, yeah. a unique one. Uh, and there's a lot of hand management going on here. And there's a potential of uh, network building because essentially you're connecting multiple cities, not just one city in this game, in this kind of a network under the water. And, you know, all that's sort of fluff. It doesn't really matter that it's under the water, but you're, you're sort of trying to make these uh, cities. This ain't no work. dry euro. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's essentially the core of it. Let's just get into the core mechanics here in the sense that how, how this differentiates itself. Sounds great. I think being a worker placement game primarily is is pretty on the mark there. The key factor being that when you place your worker down, you also have to play a card from your hand. So you have a hand of three cards. You, You play a worker, you play a card from your hand. Now, each of these worker places are going to be one of three colors, uh, red, green, orange, one of the cards in your hand will also be one of those three colors. Now, if you manage to match that color, you'll get to add this card to your tableau, which might do a whole bunch of different things, whether immediate or ongoing or in various ways. But I think that 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 is the, the key crux of this game is matching your worker and the place that you're placing them to with the card from your hand. And there's a a really constantly evolving puzzle here in trying to manage your hand and trying to line up the colors, trying to make sure there's enough spots left in the, in the worker placement that you're not being blocked there. Uh, So I think the, the whole game really evolves around that one core mechanic yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would certainly say that that's the you know secret sauce of underwater cities. And uh, you would think that in a worker placement game that only has, what is it, 15? I think it's 15 action spaces in a uh, three to four player game. I think it's slightly less in a two player game. You would think this game gets would get tired quickly and very kind of play by rote. But just the fact that you have to combine a worker placement action with a card in your hand 
the cards you've been carefully managing the effects of and the color balance, because the color balance is very important. If you only have one color of card in your hand, you can only effectively (laughs) choose action spaces. You narrow it down from 15 to 5 spaces, you know, over half of them might be full by the time you get to play the cards. So it's a really ingenious balancing act. And from my experience, having played, you know, over half a dozen games of this, probably more than a dozen digitally, it doesn't get old or it doesn't get old quickly, I should say. Yeah, it's this constantly evolving your options. There's constantly every single card you draw could be completely blowing open your options uh, here in in terms of how you time things out. So I don't know how much of this is is a complaint or, or a or a compliment, but you were constantly recalculating it. It, it feels like a broken GPS, like re- recalculating, recalculating. Every every time you draw a card or every time a, a, a position is blocked, you it is an incredibly improvise focused game, which is the sort of games I tend to prefer. I don't want to have to plan out ten turns in advance. I like being able to force to, to think on my feet and make it up as I go. Basically, mm. yeah, that's where I thrive. But and this and this really does draw out those uh, those strategies. Yeah, it is a highly tactical game, but it's not entirely tactical because, you know, if you become experienced in this game, you you realize that from, you know, round one, you have to be thinking about what goals are available to you. But I do want to touch upon a slight, you know, slightly subtle point that maybe not all players are, are aware of, but the fact that you have to choose from the colors is even more ingenious than what we described. Basically, there's a, a power distribution difference Mm -hmm, between all the three colors the cards and the action spaces and their effects are sometimes diametrically opposed so So basically the the green spaces tend to be relatively weaker whereas the green cards tend to be relatively stronger that's right yeah so and then the opposite true is true of the yellow action spaces their effects are really strong but the card effects tend to be weak and you guess you'd you'd be guessing correctly if you thought that the red balance is the more balanced and the effects are moderately strong between the two between the the actions spaces and the card effects and not just that there's actually a fourth strategy that you can pursue where you can buy these cards that are called what are they called special ops or something like that (laughs) basically you can play cards that are off off color to uh, uh to gain yourself some special resources as well so that grants you some extra flexibility this is layers upon layers upon layers and, and you know that part of me has always impressed me uh about uh mr suchi's design yeah i'll, I'll be honest i for my first couple of games i didn't even realize that sort of co- color hierarchy i mean partly because i mean the the, the strength is all relative not just to the color but also to your strategy basically some cards are going to be better for certain players at certain times i never really noticed that uh in in the moment so i'll be, I'll be honest uh, like some some of the wiki cards are the, exactly the card you need at a particular time so again it's not a game where you go in 
focusing, or I'm going to focus on all of the powerful green cards of this game. It, it's like much more situational uh, and tactical, as you said. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. There's definitely going to be times when you kind of like swing wildly from one side of the of the colors to the other side, uh, and and sometimes you have to, you know. Uh, struggle to to eke out those extra resources uh, when you really need them. I mean, it's not even a, a game where you think about the colors necessarily beyond can you match them. Like what you're thinking about is I need a space that lets me build a tunnel. What color lets me build a tunnel? Basically, is what it comes down to. Really, like you're not really thinking about the relatively strengths of those moment to moment. You just it's more focused on the short term goals are what matters here. Yeah, essentially, of the three colors, they do have that balanced uh, strength distribution that I mentioned, but they all basically let you do roughly the same things. So each of the three colors lets you build a city. Each of the three colors lets you build tunnels. Each of the three uh, actions give you some form of resources and uh, allow you to play um, sort of these building, these upgrades, which you sort of like use to specialize your cities. You know, your cities are just empty husks until you start building these facilities next to them. Uh, they, They come in three different colors. They either produce more steel plast, I think it's called, which is sort of a building material. And if you upgrade them, they produce that. And then this research currency, the yellow one basically gives you money. Yellow equals money. And the green one basically gives you kelp, which is food. So you sort of have to keep a balance of that. And in the resource production, which happens at very key times, there's only three production phases in this entire game and that and one of them is at the end of the game and and quite useless (laughs) arguably yeah i mean you can convert resources into points but yeah it's tight it's so tight in the resources resource distribution every single token and every single chip matters in this game and it's it's hard to say what's the best strategy do you want to diversify and have a variety of resources on a given city or do you want to specialize and have duplicates because that gives you different bonuses as well so it just sort of takes throws the brain for a loop you should see this production board which and i know how the system works but still, it's it, it kind of makes my eyes cross whenever I look at it. Like looking at an Excel spreadsheet, basically, that hasn't been formatted properly. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really wild. But once you understand the systems, oh, it's it's so elegant. Well, let's talk a little more about that about those cities and the like the the, the player boards, basically yeah. that you just uh, hinted at. Absolutely. Yeah, you you start us off. Well, yeah. Well, I mean that that being the primarily the the. The means by which we, we like all, all this worker placement and car placing, it's all in to work towards the efforts towards building your underwater city. So every player has their own board, basically. So the worker placement is obviously happening on a, on a central board, but then you're building a city on a personal board. So, and they're, they're all preset spaces. So you have cities that can go in particular places, you have tunnels that can go in particular places joining the cities and you can have these facilities that can go on the sort of satellite outskirts of of these cities. And you can place there are some placement rules as to how you can place them and different rules about how they act they were activated which I found a little confusing. But that th- that is largely the, the main goal is building a city, spending resources to build facilities that will then generate more of those resources. Basically, you get you get points at the end of the game based on 
how full your underwater city is. Right. And that how diverse it is. <laughs> and that personal board has, you know, nine spaces for cities. It's basically a three by three grid. But you know, you don't have to fill each of those spaces. You don't have to, you know, fill more than your initial one. Basically, you start with one city. I mean, I think you'd lose if you built only one, but technically <laughs> you don't have to build uh, out further from that. But basically, you 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 have these node points and the, the nodes are the cities and then the, the lines that connect them are tunnels. And basically, everything has to connect to your network. You can build a city out there in the distance, unconnected to everything, anything, but it's not going to score you anything until it connects to your first city. It's sort of like Alhambra, where you have to get your little uh, guy to reach the fountain at the center of the of the structure. So oh, you have to connect everything, line up. You have to plaster everything. You have to have the system self-sustain so that it produces enough resources to keep going. And of course, you have to feed your people at the end of the round. Not only that, there are these optional land-based cities. Metropolis? Metropolis? It's a little little bit weird. Why are we having land-based cities in an underwater cities (laughs) game? I was promised underwater people. Anyways, if you connect to these optional metropolises, you can score one-time benefits or recurring production bonuses, which can be quite powerful. There's two basic metropolises, and then there's one sort of uber metropolis, which is at the kind of very opposite of the player board. And and that's mostly focused on endgame points, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of ways to score endgame bonuses. Yeah, so that that, that provides one of another key sort of decision points in this game in how quickly you sort of race to these metropolises. Because some of them will give you either ongoing productions, which you want to trigger as many times as possible, or instant rewards that at the right time could be a, a huge uh, b- boon to sort of kickstart things. The problem is getting to these w- requires so many resources. And if you spread yourself too thin, then you're not going to have be producing anything. So there's re- this real question of do you turtle up, build all your production buildings and then start spreading out? Or do you race to these metropolis, try and get a, a, a sort of benefits there at the right time? Yeah, I, I sort of feel like I spread myself too thin in the four-player game that we have going on. I actually am running like four separate games on yukata.de right now, so I don't mind. I'm doing well on them overall. But absolutely, you can get a little bit ahead of yourself. I sort of like to think of it as, you know, you're sending like construction drones out there. They're laying the foundations and groundwork. You're still spending money to have them build stuff but you know people can't occupy it until you wire up the electricity and you wire up the i don't know food supply or whatever so definitely beware of that (laughs) it's it's easy to get ahead of your skis it can be quite punishing i will say i mean it's it's a very tight economy and one of the 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 real tricky bits here is the the buildings say you need credits you really want to generate some more credits well the buildings that that generate credits in the production phase require credits to build you can't you can't you can't make you can't make credits without credits there's, there's a phrase there somewhere um so that that, that can be a, a real tricky sort of pickle to, to to work your way out of when you you if you 
spend the last of a particular resource at the wrong time. Uh, but then that does give it a very scrappy vibe as you're trying to find the right combo of cards and, and action spaces that might give you just the right resource to help kickstart that economy again. Uh, and it, like when you, when you, you, you stare, you sit there staring at this puzzle for a couple of minutes and then suddenly find the perfect combination that lets you sort of <laughs> fight, fight your way out of that, that, underwater traffic jam and and and, so, and solve the puzzle and that that is really thrilling at the same time those two three minutes you were sitting staring at this puzzle <laughs> like what everyone else is waiting for you in the, during that time so it, it can because it's so dynamic because everything is constantly shifting it can be a little prone to analysis paralysis yeah, I would agree with that. This game is is uh, like we talked about with the worker placement and the card uses. I mean, that alone uh, can lead to so much AP. Uh, so uh, it's been a while since I've played in person, but I have played a number of games in person, and it tends to it tends to roll along a, a lot because the worker placement sort of drives what you can do. Sometimes you'll have to take you know a a not uh, ideal choice but but <laughs> you, you, that's that's the choices available to you but you know I, I like what you said about feeling feeling scrappy i think you said that word like i feel like i am wheeling and dealing i feel like i am snagging that contract from my competitors uh to get that extra steel plast or something like that i feel much more like i'm just eking by to meet my you know targets then in a game like terraforming Mars, we talked about where you can kind of like sit on hordes of resources for ages, just because you're just waiting for that one card to come up. Like well, that, that, gets, that brings me to a good point. Like I am incredibly surprised how many people compare this game to terraforming Mars. Uh, I mean, I can, you, you are playing a bunch of cards on a sort of inhospitable location but that's about where the comparison ends i i think like the 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 pacing the 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 it's literally like the 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 sense of of the resources that you're getting and 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 how that is paced across the game is completely different one thing yeah i agree with you there i think they came out at roughly the same similar time and they're they're both kind of you know science fictiony but mechanically they play very differently from each other Mechanically, I, I mean, my first comparison would be Caverna. Interesting. Worker placement game, you're managing, I mean, maybe more Agricola since you're managing the cards that give you unique abilities, all, all in effort to build your personal little board that you're, you're building out that will give you some production that you have to feed every few rounds. It's, it's f- fairly comparable to that, but again, much more dynamic and, and sort of evolving constantly. Yeah, the one good thing about this game compared to Agricola, and you know, this is comparing two very, very different games, but you know, Agricola has the kind of the initial sin of front loading all the cards you will ever see in the game before the game even starts. Yeah, and then you have to puzzle out, you, you find the optimal solution between those cards from the get go. Right. Whereas this game, it doles out the cards in a fairly gentle manner and you only ever have a hand of three cards. Mm. It is quite significant that you only ever have a hand of three cards. Through some actions, it's possible to kind of like draw two or three extra. You might even see, you know, six cards in your hand over the course of the turn, but you definitely will have to discard down to three 
I think it's before your turn starts. Yeah, so you actually, you, that's, that's one of the key things that the, the first, when I was first taught, we played wrong in that you can get as many cards as you want and you have to discard them to three, but you get to wait until the start of your next turn. So the actions that other people take and the spaces that they block, you can wait and see how that plays out before you commit, which I think is that that is a pretty key point that can, re- that can reduce a lot of the frustration basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the rules of thumb I was taught or when I started learning this game was basically try and have two of the three colors or three of the three colors if possible. Because that's going to give you the widest potential of choices at your disposal. Now, you can't always accomplish it. Sometimes you you really want to hold on to that card, especially if it's one of these special S cards. They're not just the -the run-of-the-mill type of cards. You have to perform a special S card action to get one of these cards, and they cost lots of moolah to play. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you, you, you have to play them just like you would any other colored card, but they are the ones that really kind of shake things up. The S cards primarily are what give you in-game bonuses. Six of them are visible to all players at the very beginning of the game. So I guess you could argue that they're somewhat like those milestones we talked about in Terraforming Mars. They're just kind of open, open information of things that you can claim. And then there's a deck of uh, lesser, slightly lesser S cards that uh, some of them are actions, some of them are endgame bonuses, and some of them are instants. But they're all like sort of beefed up versions of regular cards from the deck. Yeah, there is a a specific action space you have to go to to claim one of these that only one person gets to do each round. And there's a, so there's a significant action investment but also literal money investment as well so it's quite a big commitment to grab one of these and it's a real it's a tension point as to whether to grab one early if there's a particular strategy you're going for and is it one that gives you points for that strategy you might want to grab it early but then losing opportunities in the meantime and it's, cl- it's clogging up your hand until you can afford to play it and you, uh, or do you, do you, you risk waiting yeah, do you, do you risk waiting and someone else blocking you? Yeah, it's it's very very risky. I would say by you know round six, it, it starts getting really competitive to get those end game bonus cards. So th- I would say that that's like the biggest step towards strategy in this game is is, is obviously those end game bonuses. Also, the metropolises kind of help lead you a little bit along in terms of strategy. You might start start thinking about how to lay out your cities for optimal effects. That's that's a good long-term strategy. To, uh, yeah, I, I will element. say those metropolises, <laughs> that's not a word, um, but, but you, you get one of those at the start of the game and it's going to give you a whole bunch of points for fulfilling a particular prerequisite. And you don't really get any choice in that matter. So it, it, it is kind of forcing your hand a little bit you should focus on this, which is probably good for, for I, I, I didn't mind so much on for my first couple of plays, but I can see on future plays that being a little limiting that it's forcing you into a particular strategy. Yeah. I don't know if it's, if it's really forcing you because you don't have to connect to those metropolises. I'm not sure if it's evident from the digital implementation, but those are like randomly dealt tiles. And yes. also this game has uh, sort of a basic personal player board and then a, a advanced player board. There's basically just more going on in the advanced side. 
you know, definitely play it once you're you're more uh, familiar with the game. But when you combine the randomly dealt metropolises and the the highly varied advanced uh, player boards, I think you get a real wide variety of sort of competing, you know, shiny baubles for you to chase. Yeah, those advanced boards like have unique like some locations will have an additional cost to building something, but also give you an additional production. So I guess it can you can really build a more specialized economy there, and and it's a bit more of a, a puzzle finding the correct path through those buildings. I will say the base game did feel a little like I, I don't mind it right now, but I can see it being a little repetitive. How samey a lot of your maps will look at the end of the for game. sure yeah i don't think there's any shame in using the the basic board as you're getting accustomed to the game but yeah maybe at game four or five you'll want to switch over to the advanced side it's not a game like caverna where you have any real sense of creativity that you're investing in these cities they're all just going to be these little plastic domes with these little plastic lozenges in the same configuration largely you're not going to get a lot, a lot of, a lot of uh, expression <laughs> in these cities. Yeah, I think the creativity, I would argue, would come from the network. Right, the whole point is is the network, not any of the individual cities themselves. Is you know how effectively can you lay out this arrangement? Because you know, you you don't have to, uh, you won't fill out all the slots. I've never filled out all the city slots. Um, so you know, you you have a variety of shapes and arrangements that you can make you can sort of mm. do the perpendicular lines or you, you <laughs> or you can do the diagonal ones and you can sort of create crystal crosses or a z shape and and then you need the double uh, tunnels to to reach the final the mega metropolis so it's it's a, it's a balancing act and i think um it's it's always a thrill for me trying to get it to to really sing yeah, I mean that's good to hear because I mean I I I sort of I, again I don't mind right now, but I, it does feel like it would get a little repetitive. I I've not really dug into the full strategy here, but it does feel like you need a little bit of everything. You can't really specialize to a huge degree. It's you're going to need a couple of each of the main buildings. That it's going to make it really hard to to feel different game to game, but maybe with the advanced side of the board that helps shake that up a little bit. I, I really think, having played a bunch, that it's the end game strategy cards that really rule this this game. Uh, you can obviously score points in various ways, building cities, building uh, you know green developments, for instance. But basically, it's knowing how the how the buildings produce resources and knowing which resources can get converted into points at the end of the game basically you're not going to get all six of the end game bonus cards so you you probably want to target one or two or even three to narrow down on it's a little bit like russian railroads that way where you where you have to kind of be aiming towards those end game goals yeah i I think i'm just making this realization now that perhaps part of my issue is how many distractions there can be in this game. It's a little easy to get distracted by the the new shiny. Like so much of this game is invested in you trying to match up these cards and uh, with the action spaces. And sometimes you, you get so focused on that, you miss the more important thing you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, like, totally oh, I've, got, I've got the perfect. These two actions match up perfectly, but maybe I just need to go build a tunnel, and that's that will get net me more points in the long run. Right. So again, I, I don't know how much of that is a good thing. Like, it, in, in I don't want to be 
number crunching, if you know what I mean. I always want to build a fun city. <laughs> yeah, it's the the challenge that should come in in any advanced game. I think is is layers, right? It's like levels of strategy, and the games we were just talking about, terraforming Mars and Ares Project, both both have that, right? You could really get mired in the minutia, looking down quote-unquote, metaphysically, you know, meta- metaphorically, looking down at your cards in your hand, looking down at the action spaces in the case of underwater cities without looking up to see what some of the broader strategies could be. Maybe even looking up, looking at what your fellow players are doing and seeing what strategies they're pursuing. It's hard to do that, but in a, in a decently complex game, you're going to be able to do that with greater fluency once you get more familiar with the game systems, right? First you learn to crawl and then walk and then run. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely does feel like this game has legs and I'm curious to to play it some more and see how that experience plays out and evolves with time. Yeah. Can can we talk about the production design a little bit? That was the final thing I wanted to touch on. Yes, go ahead. I own a physical copy of this game. I I bought it way back, and I've played it a number of times in person. It's been a little while since I played it in physically, though, so maybe my my memory is a little bit hazy. Well, first of all, I think the graphic design is great. I really appreciate how Hmm. colorful this game is. Hmm. And it's a sort of a little bit ahead of its time because a lot of Euro games in that generation, maybe it was just the tail end of that generation, but were very gray or, you know, like say two colors or something like that, green and brown instead of just brown. Uh, Like so many of these kind of Mediterranean uh, set games uh, (laughs) that came before it. Uh, I really like how bright and punchy this game is. And it has a little bit of, you know, optimism to it, I guess, Uh, you know, a little bit of, you know, snarkiness as well. Like, obviously, it's not all uh, gumdrops and and puppies and roses uh, happening, what's going on in the card art, but it's not gloomy, and it's not doom. So that part of it, I like. The iconography is a little bit confusing, as can happen in these sorts of complex games. Seems like you have something. Yes, so... Yeah, I, I I think it's perhaps a little oversaturated in color. Otherwise, I think the color is, is largely fine. It could do it with a little more clarity, I, I think. Um, the artwork, when, when you stop and look at the artwork, it is actually quite nice. It's, it's, it's some really beautiful art there. It's not. I don't find it com- com- particularly evocative in the sense that I I don't really notice it's there half the time. Like I, I, I my mind just completely glances over it, which is super, really unusual for me. Like I, art is what draws me into this game, and like a lot of it is just boardrooms and business people, and not particularly exciting, uh, e- evocative themes in the artwork. But I, I think my main issue is in the symbology and the iconography and. Like it, it, it's, it's the old age old uh, race for the galaxy issue. It, it works fine when you already know the rules, <laughs> but learning it is a real chore. Sure. Yeah. I think that the very basic symbology, like the actual black and white icons are fine, but when it comes to the more like three dimensional looking iconography of the fully painted, you know, production buildings and things like that, that's when it can get a little bit messy. You'll note, 
that uh, in the the production board once again that that really that sp- uh, Excel spreadsheet. Oh, yeah, it's really <laughs> hard to sort of parse what's going on, and you can only really understand that you know green produces green, but it also pl- produces points. It's and- not particularly intuitive what something will produce, especially when it's upgraded. Right. And yellow produces yellow money, but it also produces this super pink stuff. It could be a little bit more intuitive, but I don't know how they would have made it more intuitive. In terms of the other production, like the, the 3D domes are, are fine. I think they're kind of cute. Yeah, I, I like those, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a little sad that they aren't those rubbery half ball things that you can oh, that push inside and out. I wish they were all that. I mean, that's just I, completely decompress your underwater city. It's an underwater city's dexterity game. That's that's what I'm going to come up with next. And uh, the little discs, <laughs> yeah, they they look like cough drops. They 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 look like little hard candies. Uh, that is just devious. They look so delicious with their translucent coloration. Another thing I wanted to say is that the the UI in, on, on the central board I don't love. Like the way the actions are scattered around the edges of the board, like oriented in like three different ways, and even just like the the little boards you're putting, like you're not putting a worker down really. You're putting down these these cardboard chits that are pretty. They're like again not very evocative. I don't know what they're representing. I think they're supposed to be like airlocks. Yeah, but and again, like it, it feels. It, it feels very soulless the way you're interacting with that part. Uh, I, I don't know. I could totally see that. Yeah, and again, just being oriented different ways and tricky to to navigate. Yeah, it's it shows the the seams are not perfectly clean. Absolutely, I think we already touched upon the boards, the player boards themselves, and I think a couple of other pieces are really really thin cardstock. Yeah, and I think yeah. a lot of people had complaints about that. They rectified it in the expansion, it seems. But, you know, since we're just talking about the base game, that was a little unfortunate. Yes, yeah, it does all feel a little bit cheap, I will say. Yeah. In terms of everything else, you know, the little cardboard chits and whatever, I think that's the weakest part. The resource tokens are hmm. are a little hard to read other than the color. It's very wargamey, like all these square cardboard chits. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I know that yeah, I think Geek Up has some more nice acrylic or plasticky pieces to them. But, um, you know, you shouldn't have to have to invest extra money to have nice playable pieces. I think they're serviceable pieces i think the the production design is is serviceable but it's certainly not luxurious in any way yeah those parts really take like for a very thematic game those parts are incredibly dry (laughs) Uh, maybe i'll get the expansion just for the upgraded boards yeah i am from what i've heard of the mechanics of of those expansions they're quite interesting as well like one of them is an underwater museum where you're, you're sort of bidding for for these artifacts that that will give you bonuses yeah, that could be very cool. I have to get my copy back from a friend, to be honest, with the base <laughs> game. Shall we resurface? Should we kind of wrap up and give our personal opinions? Sure, go ahead. Uh, I like Underwater Cities a lot. I've played it quite a, quite often. I've mentioned over the years that I've had it. I mean, I haven't sold it off. I still really love it. I really like Terraforming Mars, but I prefer this to that. I will play Underwater Cities any day. And this game, I, in my opinion, makes Terraforming Mars look like a messy tire fire. Bloated. <laughs> yeah. And, and like you said, the art is kind of boring in this game. At least it has art. 
like the stock <laughs> photography that's in Terraforming Mars. We don't have to directly compare the games, but this is one of my faves. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, so th- this is, I'm pretty sure this is my first Vladimir Suchi game. I think I may have played Last Will like a decade ago and don't have any recollection of it. But it left a strong first impression, even with a few rules we were playing wrong. I, I really enjoyed that first game. This, like I said, I, I, I always love games that force you to improvise, to think on your feet, to, 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 to play with the hand you're dealt. Uh, and this really leans into that. I do have some misgivings about its length that, I mean, I don't know how founded they are, probably not, not very by the sound of it, but uh, I, I am definitely want to, want to be playing some more and see how those different strategies play out. And so I, I enjoyed it enough that I went out and immediately bought uh, Suchi's latest game, Woodcraft. <laughs> oh, very cool. Uh, what, what are the complaints that you said? You're saying people thought it was too long or too short? To be honest, I, I, one thing I didn't bring up is that I was surprised to see board game geek rates this best at two. That and they and they were completely warn against playing it at four, and that it can drag on a little long, uh, especially with that constantly re- recalculating. That that can really make things drag out. I've only played it at three. And, and it's a, the, the dynamics do shake up a little bit based on player count. Four players gives you one space that lets you copy someone else's space, but only one player each round. So don't, that, that would be incredibly tight. Even just without the time considerations, the board will be much tighter and the, I, I feel will be a little more punishing. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I think that three would probably be the I- ideal number for this. And it's, it's a very strong two-player game, I think. Um, turn alternation. I think is all mm. is all that changes. There's a there's a two player side to the player board as well, so it slightly adjusts the worker placement spaces. But I played uh, two player games, and it's it's really quite adequate. I like it a lot. I really like how this game has a hard ending after nine rounds. Uh, other people would 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 probably disagree with me. Comparing once again to Terraforming Mars, some people will drag it out. Some people will rush it. But I like how this game has a hard ending. It doesn't drag out. And then the tension rises because you know when it's going to wrap up. Yeah, you you know exactly how many actions you're going to have. And you can really try and map out what you plan to do with that. Of of course, things will change uh, and you'll be forced to to, to pivot. Always be pivoting, I think, is the catchphrase of this game. Yeah, so I like it. It's a good one. Recommended. Yeah, no, definitely worth a a game. Strong strong first impression from my perspective. (laughs) Very cool. Okay, shall we talk about the next game we're going to be tackling? Yeah, uh, tell us about that. (laughs) Let's see. We love our uh, Xbox Game Pass here. So we're going to be talking about a game that was recently added. It's a short game. Uh, I think it's a Canadian-developed game as well. I believe so, yeah. Called Venba. That's V-E-N-B-A. It's a it's a cute-looking indie game on PC and console, of course. Go check it out. Uh, it's on Steam as well. Uh, I, I, I believe I did mention it. It was part of the Steam Next Fest. There was a demo. Oh, cool. Uh, and I, I had some strong impressions from that. And if, if you know me, you know I, I love cooking and games. And this is very this is basically a, an Indian-Canadian immigrants expressing themselves and, and, and their family through food. 
I, I uh, a lot it. of cook, cook, cooking mini games. So hope you are hungry <laughs> and, and have uh, be, be prepared for, for, for those cravings. Very cool. Yeah. Immigrant stories are always so powerful. Maybe I'm sort of bracing myself for a potential tearjerker here. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe it'll be all rainbows and, and butterflies. Who knows? Yes, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Canadian immigrant myself, uh, raising a family, so I, even I can find something to, to, to relate to there. There you go. Fantastic. Okay, so next game we're going to be talking about is Vemba. Please check it out if you have access to it. Yeah, it's a short game, so all the more reason to join the club and play along. If you have any thoughts or questions or comments on this episode or on Venba, you can email us at omnigamersclub at gmail.com and I, I've basically abandoned the platform previously known as Twitter <laughs> not, the new name shall not be mentioned you can still contact me on there but I, I will not be actively updating that platform so stay tuned I, I am actively on Blue Sky Mark you're, in, you're active on Instagram if you want to, to get in touch but otherwise our website and email are probably the most uh, consistent place to find us that's right let Twitter burn everyone let it burn <laughs> and until then <laughs> please have a balanced diet of gaming thanks for listening everyone thank you bye bye